John chapter 14. We'll be continuing in our series in John. We'll be in John 14. You can either open in your Bibles or turn in your cell phones or um, iPads uh, to John chapter 14. If you're taking notes, uh, I want you to write one, two, three, and then one, two, three, and then one, two. So for those of you who like to take notes, one, two, three, one, two, three, and one, two. That's going to help you follow the message this morning. We're starting in John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. These are the words of Jesus. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show show myself to them. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you tend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, this morning... We are captivated by Christ, by his call and his promise of peace. And Lord, we live in a world filled with anxiety, and we long for the promise of peace that you give. And so this morning, Father, as we enter into your word, as we open to come and be led by your spirit, may our hearts be open to you. May our lives be opened to you. And may you allow us to be changed by your work within us. God, take this word and make it living and active in our hearts. Help it to come alive this morning as we hear your words and thoughts. May we, O Lord, through the work of your Holy Spirit, be transformed by the living presence of Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, church. 
for the reading, joining me in the reading of God's word and in that time of prayer. We've been in John for uh, quite a while. Uh, you may not realize, but we've been in John since 2018. We've been covering it in little chunks, which has allowed us to dive deep, to take a break and study other sections of scripture and then come back to John. And while that's been really neat for allowing us to dive deep and then also uh, study other parts of scripture, at times uh, the challenge has been sometimes we forget things about John that we need to remember as we dive into the text. And so I want to remind us about three things about the gospel of John that are going to be important for helping us to understand our text this morning. So this is the first one, two, three. The first point is that John writes as an eyewitness. You see, uh, John writes after Matthew, Mark, and Luke write their gospels. He's an elder statesman near the end of his life. And he writes as an eyewitness. You see, Mark writes because he wants to get the story out. And he had traveled with Paul, and he then spent a lot of time working with the apostle Peter. And when he writes his gospel, he writes primarily taking down what Peter told him. Luke writes because he wants his friend Theophilus to understand what he's being told about the Christian faith. And so Luke investigates. Luke's a doctor. Luke might have been a doctor to royalty and to those who are of nobility. And so he's writing uh, his gospel to Theophilus. And so he investigates. He, inv uh, he, uh, he, um, he interviews eyewitnesses. He asks different people about what happened. And he writes his gospel the most chronologically from beginning to end. He tries to give a complete account. He's the only one who uses medical terms as he writes the gospel to explain the people who uh, come into contact with Jesus. He uses Greek medical terms. So he writes very scientifically to explain everything. But he also was not an eyewitness. But John, John is an eyewitness writing at the end of his life because he wants people to, uh, to capture the meaning of Jesus' life. Because he's afraid that people might know the facts of Jesus' life, but miss out on the meaning of Jesus' life. So point number two is not just that John writes as an eyewitness, but that John gives us a unique gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they give us a synopsis or a summary of Jesus' life. But John doesn't do that. John gives us a thematic gospel. John tells us about seven I am sayings of Jesus, and he gives us seven signs that Jesus presents. And so he, he talks about Jesus in terms of these signs and these I am statements. And whereas uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the totality of Jesus' ministry, John actually covers less than one month worth of Jesus' life. And he focuses on Jesus' encounters that happen around Jerusalem. And so John gives us a thematic uh, gospel, because rather than focusing on religion like Matthew does, Matthew writes his gospel for religious people to understand how Jesus is different than religion. Luke writes so that you would know kind of the complete story of Jesus. John doesn't do that because he doesn't focus on historical completeness. He doesn't focus on scientific accuracy. He doesn't focus on, on Jesus and religion. He focuses on the spiritual meaning of Jesus. Because like we said, he realized that people would know the facts of Jesus' life but maybe miss the significance of his life. So he writes as an eyewitness. He writes a special, thematic, spiritually emphasized gospel. And the third thing is, in our text today, we are in the upper room. Jesus is hours away from being beaten and tried and about 12 to 16 hours from being crucified. And he's in an upper room around a dinner table with his disciples. In fact, 20, oh, more than 25% of the Gospel of John focuses on this one night and, or day in Jesus' life. 
as opposed to the other Gospels that are so complete. John spends more than 25% of his Gospel focusing on this one night, and he gives us Jesus' last words. But it's interesting because when you think about John, because he's an eyewitness, he is able to give them or give us intimate details that others could not. So, for example, I could tell you that uh, Wes Turnbow went on a great ski trip last year and that he had a great time with his friends because I heard about it. But that wouldn't be the same as saying, I got to ride up on the lift with Wes. I saw him look down and think, oh, my gosh, I should not be on this run. And then, I, you know, it's those intimate details that you can only give when you're there. John riddles his gospel with these intimate details because he's an eyewitness, because he's wanting you to understand the spiritual significance of Jesus, and because he's in this upper room, and he is there and understanding the intimate nature of what Christ does. So John writes as an eyewitness. He writes a different kind of gospel, and he gives us unique and intimate details of what Jesus says. So with that in mind, I want to go back to our text I want to point out three things that stand out to me at the get-go, and then I'm going to dive deeply into two things. So the first thing that stands out to me from our text is John uh, chapter 14 and verse 17. The spirit of truth, the the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. uh, Three other times in this text, Jesus will mention that we as Christians will have an experience of somebody and something that the world does not have. Jesus says that as his followers and believers, we have a special and unique experience that the world does not have. If you've been visiting church and around Christian people, and you're like, these people all talk about something and I don't, I'm not experiencing it. They're talking about something and I'm not feeling it. I'm here. You're physically here. And we're talking about the presence of God being here and the spirit stirring. And you're like, I don't feel it. I don't see it. You may not experience anything different here than you would at being at the uh, Disney concert hall and having them play Beethoven or Mozart. You may not be any more inspired from being here. You may not be any more entertained. You may not be any more awed and wonder. And you're thinking, what are these Christian people talking about? What I'm here to tell you is you're not crazy. Because Jesus says here in John chapter 14, there are some things that you will never experience or or have unless you give your lives fully to him. And if you're a Christian, if you ever wondered that you somehow, you seem to feel like you can't explain something to your friends who are non-Christian because they just can't get it, Jesus says in John chapter 14, there is something that you have uniquely and specially that they cannot receive, not experience, and not have. You, as a Christian, do not just have the same experience as the world have, but on a bigger and better scale. You see, some Christians think, oh, I'm just like my non-Christian friends, but my experiences are a little bit better. But see, Jesus doesn't just say you're going to have better, same experiences. What Jesus says is you're going to have an experience and something that they will never have. You have a unique and special experience with God through the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does in your life that nobody else can understand save those who have the Holy Spirit. So, if you feel like sometimes you can't explain something that is just so real to you, 
Notice that Jesus says in John 14 that you have something that the world cannot have save from giving them, giving their lives to Jesus. I wish we could go into that more, and that's something you can write down, study, and talk to your community group about. You can even uh, ask any of the elders about. I mean, I wish I had more time to explain why I think this is such a beautiful, amazing, and special thing. That as Christians, there is something amazing, beautiful, and mysterious about our faith that no one else can behold. And there's something sacred and holy and very beautiful that God has chosen in relationship with us to give us unique and specially. But nevertheless, I'm going to run out of time. So write it down and talk to your community group about it. Number two, Jesus calls himself and the Holy Spirit helper. Jesus says, I will send another helper to you. And he refers to himself as the first helper. God calls himself our helper in the Old Testament. Jesus refers to himself as a helper, and he refers to the Holy Spirit as a helper. The word advocate there is another word for helper. You see, Jesus doesn't see helper as meaning inferior, weak, less dignity, less worth. Jesus does not see the role of helper as less than. One of the things we struggle with in our society, in our world, is we feel like if we're a helper, somehow that means we're less than. That we're less powerful, less important, less significant, have less dignity and less worth. But God calls himself a helper. God calls, Jesus refers to himself as a helper. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a helper. When God sees Adam in the garden, he says it is not good for man to be alone. And in Genesis chapter 2, what we see is God brings every animal to Adam. And, the, and Adam realizes none of these animals can help him or meet his needs. So the Bible tells us that God makes Eve uniquely for Adam so that in his helplessness, she alone would uniquely be able to help him in his helplessness. You see, in the same way, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are our helper because in our helplessness, they help us to do things that we could not do without them. And you see, whereas the world would say, if you're a helper, you're less than, you're insignificant, you have less worth, less dignity, Jesus holds up the role of helper in high esteem. When you help people in your life, you live like God in their lives in the most important ways. When you help those in your lives and you enter into their helplessness, you are not less dignified, less worthy, or less important, but you bear God and his presence in their lives in the most important ways. You see that Jesus sees that role of helper as one that is holy and sacred, and he holds it in high esteem. And we ought never to look down on those we would call helper, because Jesus holds them in high esteem. So the first thing is, we see that Christians and those who give their lives to Jesus have a unique and special experience Number two, Jesus views the role of helper with high esteem. And number three, God cares about you. You'll notice in this text, Jesus will say, let not your hearts be troubled. My peace I leave with you. Jesus is literally hours away from being betrayed and tried. He is carrying the weight of the world literally on his shoulders. He's about to be crucified and betrayed by his best friends. And in the middle of this intimate moment, he says, don't be troubled. 
My peace I give to you. I will not leave you as orphans. When he says, I will not leave you as orphans, he's not just talking about physical provision. Because, you know, if you're at an orphanage, they provide for your physical needs. But Jesus says, you're not going to be left as an orphan. You're not going to be left at an orphanage because I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. Jesus doesn't just talk about physical provision, but he implies through this intimate picture of the Father coming to us and us not being left orphaned, he paints an image of spiritual, emotional care. In the midst of his dark moment, dark night of the soul, he cares about their worries. He cares about their peace. And he wants them to know that he's going to provide for their emotional and spiritual needs, not just their physical needs. And so if you're here today and you wonder, does God ever care about me? Or is it just some set of rules all of humanity has to follow? Remember Jesus' words here and know that he cares for you. But brothers and sisters, knowing that God cares about our emotional and spiritual well-being, we ought not to treat each other with anything less. We sometimes are so much better at meeting physical needs but neglecting the emotional, spiritual needs of each other. We're sometimes better at giving handouts and help to those who we come into contact with, but forgetting that we need to care for their hearts and their hurts. God cares not just about our physical needs, but about our emotional and spiritual needs. So let's think about this so far. We realize that John writes as an eyewitness we realize that he writes a unique gospel that is thematically and spiritually significantly based. And we, write, and we know that he gives us a gospel with intimate details. When I look at this text, the three things that stand out to me that are super important, but I, I can't dive into them too deeply this morning, is that one, that we, get a, we have a unique and special experience as his people. Number two, God holds the role of helper in high esteem. And number three, God cares about us and cares about our mental and spiritual well-being, and we ought not to care about less. But now I want to dive into two specific topics a little bit more deeply. And so if you have your Bibles, open them again, and we're going to start in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. In these 16 verses of our text today, Jesus mentions four times love and obedience. Four times out of 16 verses, on the night he's about to be betrayed, Hours before his, uh, his, his trial, uh, hours before his death, Jesus talks about love and obedience. You get the sense that Jesus thinks love and obedience go hand in hand. And see, that's really odd because in today's world, we, people often talk about love and obedience being opposed. You see, on the one hand, love is warm and fuzzy. It feels good. It gives you this really nice, warm feeling. It gives you a bit of a glow. Obedience, on the other hand, it's cold. It's harsh. 
We think of it as grit your teeth and just do what you're told. And it doesn't seem to give you that same warm, fuzzy feeling. In fact, there have been several articles in Psychology Today saying that parents should not teach their kids to obey because it is stunting the development of their personality. In fact, there's also people who are writing about if you want to really love somebody, you can't ask them or teach them to obey because it's not authentic. Because as soon as you obey, that means you're doing something that you wouldn't want to do. Therefore, that's not authentic. But because today, the word of the day is authentic and genuine. To be authentic and genuine, you have to do what feels good. Therefore, you can't be obeying. You see, in today's world, they say obedience is here, love is here. Do what you feel. Be authentic. Love. Feel that warmth. Don't obey because that's not authentic. You're not being the real you if, you, if you're doing something that's not natural to you. See, if, as soon as you do something you love, it's not really obeying, they say. And so the world tells us that love and obeying are opposed. But when you look at what Jesus says, he seems to say that they are gracefully intertwined. That love and obedience go hand in hand. And the way Jesus talks about them, each, each of the four times he says it slightly differently, you get the sense that Jesus says you can't have love without obedience, and you can't have obedience without real love. And somehow for Jesus, as he talks about them, they go hand in hand, and they, and they, and they marinate each other. They bring out the best in each other. They somehow gracefully dance together where one wouldn't be the same without the other. Jesus seems to paint this picture that love and obedience go hand in hand to create something very beautiful and marvelous. It's amazing. It's sunny. Love and obedience, when they come together, God enters in because somehow something sacred happens when love and obedience go together. So let's think about that further. What does Jesus mean when he talks about love? In these 16 verses of our text today, love is mentioned 10 times. And in this upper room discourse, which includes the farewell discourse which we're in, Love is mentioned 35 times. Jesus, as he's about to be tried, betrayed, and dies, he thinks about love. He cares about love. He cares about our love. He cares about his love for us. He cares about our love for each other. This whole text is imbibed with love. But what does he mean by love? Is love just a warm, fuzzy feeling that allows you to be authentic in today's world? Or is there something more to love? In John 15, 9, which we'll get to next week, Jesus says, As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Jesus says, As the Father loved me, I have loved you. Now remain in my love. As Jesus talks about love in John 15, which gets repeated all the way up through John 17, you get the sense that love begins with God's work poured out into us. God's love poured into us, around us, and for us. God acts on our behalf. God reaches out to us. God creates us. God calls us to beauty. God longs for us. It all starts with the work of God in our life. Love, as Jesus sees it, begins with God. God's action in us, towards us, and for us, and all around us. When Jesus thinks about love, he's not thinking about a, a, a warm and fuzzy feeling, but he's thinking first about God's work towards us, in us, around us, and through us. But in John 3, 19, Jesus says that people loved darkness more than light. And in John 12, 43, he says 
people were lovers of the praise of men more than the praise of God. So in John, on the one hand, you see love as the work of God, his action towards us first and foremost. And on the other hand, you have us. What are our longings? What are our desires? And what do we pursue? On the one hand, you have love, which is what God pours out into us. And on the other hand, you have love, which is what we desire, we hunger, we pursue with our lives. And both participate in this call to love that we see in John chapter 14. God reaches out to us. God pours out his life around us, in us, and for us. And we set our affections and desires towards him, and we pursue him in response. And that love becomes his action, spurring in us a desire for him. You'll see this happening all throughout John 14, all the way in through 17. So that's love. But what's obedience? The Greek word here is tereo. And it means to keep, to guard, and preserve. That's interesting. I don't know if you asked me what it meant to obey if I would have said to keep, to guard, and to preserve. It makes me think about it a little bit differently, doesn't it? You see, when I say, I want Jeremy to obey me, what I'm saying is, I think that he ought to follow what I say. If I tell him to do something or not to do something, when I say I want him to obey, I want him to do what I tell him to do or not do what I tell him not to do. And in fact, most of us, when we think of obeying, we don't think of keeping, guarding, and preserving. We think of following someone else's rules. Most of us don't say, I'm obeying my own rules. I mean, we just don't talk like that, right? When we talk about obeying, we think of somebody else's rules, policies, ideas, and we just go along with them, we submit to them, we follow them. What well, actually turns out that there's actually a Greek word for that. The Greek word, uh, the, uh, there's a different Greek word for obey, which comes from the word for submission. And it means to subordinate your will and to conform to something else. But Jesus doesn't use that word here. As he talks about obeying and keeping the commands, he uses a word that says you ought to keep, to guard, or to preserve. In essence, what Jesus is saying is you got to take ownership of these commands. When Jesus says that if you love him, you're going to take ownership of his commands, he's saying that you're going to take on these commands, you're going to own them as your own, you're going to keep, guard, and preserve them. So if you want to think about what this is like, my good friend Wes Turnbow happens to be here, so that's why I keep using him as my example. But some of you may know that Wes uh, took on the family business. His, he, took, he joined his father, and then he started taking care of the family business. He took ownership of it. He tereoed the family business. He kept it, he guarded it, he preserved it, and hopefully he expanded it and didn't run it into the ground. That's what every father or mother who passes on their family business wants for their child. They want them to take ownership of the place. Wes has taken ownership of the business. He's taken responsibility for representing the family name, and he has taken responsibility to act like his father to care for his workers. That's how he has obeyed his father. He has kept, he has guarded, he has preserved what was given to him. And in the same way, when we are called to obey and keep the commandments, God says, I need you to take ownership of my commands. You see how different that is? We think there's a list of rules that we ought to follow, whether we like them or not. And Jesus, as he calls us to love and obey, 
calls us to take ownership of the commandments of God. Will you keep them, guard them, and preserve them? You see how different that is? When I'm guarding and preserving something, it is my responsibility to care for it. That's very different than me, be, me begrudgingly doing something I don't believe in. You see, at work, I work at a hospital. And if any of you work around a hospital, you know that there are all kinds of rules, half of which seem quite silly. And uh, a half of them, you're like, why am I doing this? Oh, it's because some regulator wanted me to write this down, even though it has no evidence of any benefit. But I'm going to do it so the regulator doesn't say anything. I'm obeying. I'm going to do it. But that's different than owning something, guarding and preserving. When God has entrusted us with his commands, he has not told us to blindly follow a set of rules, but he has told us to take ownership of his commands. Somehow those commands aren't things that are silly rules we follow, but they are things that we embody, we keep, and we preserve. They somehow gain new life because of the way we've embraced them. We have taken ownership of them, and they've become something more than what they were before. So we've talked about love. We've talked about obedience. What are commands? When I say commands to you, what's the first thing that comes to mind for most of us? Especially for the seagulls. Ten commandments, right? The first thing when I say commands, you're going to think the ten commandments. And those are rightfully called commandments. And if you read the book of Matthew and you look at the Sermon on the Mount, there's a ton of rules. Jesus talks about all these moral teachings. And so if you were just talking about commands, you, it, I, it would be easy to think, oh, Jesus is talking about keeping the Ten Commandments, the rules laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, and all the rules that come up in the Bible. But this is John. He's not Matthew. He's not writing like Matthew. And so we have to ask ourselves, how is the idea of command developed in the book of John? It may surprise you to realize there is not a single moral ethical commandment in the book of John. You see, the book of Matthew is riddled with them because Matthew is writing to religious people, highlighting the difference between Jesus and religion. So he, he quotes a lot of Old Testament law and rules, and he shows how Jesus gives you something different to think about. But John doesn't have a single moral ethical commandment in it. No, do not lie, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not use the Lord's name in vain. Not a single one. The closest thing we have in John is in John 13, which we looked at a few weeks ago, where Jesus washed his disciples' feet and he said, I have set for you an example that you should follow. And in John 13, he says he's giving us a new commandment. Ding, 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 ding. How is John using commandment? Jesus says in John 13, I'm giving you a new commandment, which is to love one another as I have loved you. When you look at the book of John, as he's developing this idea of commands and commandments, he highlights, it's said in John 13, it's repeated multiple times in 15, and it's repeated multiple times in this section all the way up to John 17, that we are to love one another as he has loved us that this is the new commandment he's giving. So you get the sense that as Jesus is talking about commands, while we might tend to think of rules and a checklist and things we follow, Jesus somehow puts this in a much more personal term because he says, love one another as I have loved you. 
all of a sudden, it's not just about a rule book. Because all of a sudden, Jesus has said, will you love the way I have loved you? Will you do to others what I have done for you? Will you own my life? Will you own the embodiment of who I have been to you? And you think the commands of God, they seem so dour, stressful. And yet, when you think of the invitation to love people and to serve them the way Jesus did you, it somehow has a totally different significance, doesn't it? But that's only one command. Jesus says he's giving you a new commandment, but he says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Keep my commands. He says plural. So what else might Jesus be talking about? Well, when I read the book of John, this is what I find. John 1.43, follow me. John 4.21, believe in me. John 5.43, accept me. John 6.35, Come to me and never be hungry. John 7.37, come to me and never thirst. John 8.13, follow me and never be in darkness. John 9.4, do the works of him who sent me. John 12.26, follow me. John 13.8, let me wash your feet. John 13.20, accept me. John 14.2, believe in me. John 14.14, ask me anything. John 15, 4, remain in me. John 15, 9, remain in my love. John 15, 20, remember what I told you. John 16, 15, receive from me. John 16, 20, be in us. John 16, 24, ask of me. John 16, 27, love me. John 17, 24, be with me. John 20, 21, be sent by him. When I read the book of John and I ask, what are the commands of Christ? What are the commands of God? They're come to me, believe in me, follow me, receive me, abide in me, remain in me, be in me, ask of me. Throughout the book of John, from beginning to end, it's riddled with the commands of Christ. But we often don't see them because we've trained ourselves to think of commands differently. But here, if you read the book of John, what are the commands of Christ? Come to me. Believe in me, follow me, receive me, abide in me, remain in me, be in me, and ask of me. You want to ask me what God's asking you to do? Is to come to him, believe in him, follow him, receive him, abide in him, remain in him, be in him, and ask of him. And you'll notice that those who do those things, this is what they hear him say. Pick up your mat and walk, John 5.11. Get out of the boat and walk on water, John chapter 6. Sit down and be fed, John chapter 6. Wash and receive your sight, John chapter 9. And rise from the dead, Lazarus, John chapter 11. It's no wonder to me that the apostles were willing to die for the privilege of owning and taking on and embracing the commands of God. Because when God says, I'm giving you my commands, he says the command is to come to me, believe in me, 
receive me, abide in me, remain in me, be in me, and ask of me. And in response, he tells them things like, pick up your mat and walk, get out of the boat and walk on the water, uh, wash your eyes and receive sight, raise from the dead. And it's like, no wonder these people were willing to die for the privilege of owning the commands of God. When I think about God like this, I would dare not reduce God to a list of rules that I have to check off on Sunday before taking communion. I would dare not reduce God to a set of rules that I look at other people about and say, are you good or not? I dare not reduce God to, you will only love me if I do these things. Because somehow, when I'm interacting with John and I'm hearing the call of God, he's telling me to remain in him. To be in him. And church, I want a God who loves me so much. He says, I want you to be with me 24-7. I don't know anybody who loves me that way except my dog. Any of you know that? You know Charlie follows me around. But there's nobody in my life who loves me like that. Jesus wants us. God wants us to be with him 24-7. Imagine the invitation that you have God who made the world and was willing to die for you. And when he calls out to you, he says, I want you to be with me 100% of the time. Never leave my side. And as you spend time with me, I'm going to tell you things like, get out of the boat and walk on water. Pick up your mat and walk. Raise from the dead. And it's no wonder to me, God, why God would call that. If God loves me, why would he want me to be anywhere else? God calls us to remain in him because he loves us and he knows there's no better place for us to be. Do you really want to be out there in the world where it's dog eat dog climb to the top? Do you really want to be out there in the world where your worth is only based on what you can earn and do? Do you want to be in a world where you could be the best Paralympian and nobody watches you? Sorry. No. None of us want to be in that world. We want to be in a world where the God who made it all, who's willing to come and die for us, says, my command to you is to take ownership of my commands. And guess what my commands are? Be in me. Remain in me. Abide in me. Ask of me. I can't steal from you. I cannot slander you. I cannot commit adultery against Lisa. I cannot look at pornography. I cannot steal money if I'm abiding in Christ. I cannot say I'm doing those things because I'm remaining in God and acting like he would act and asking of him on how to act. You see, we reduce the life we live as Christians to a set of rules and we make our lives miserable all the while. Jesus has invited us to something far greater when you abide in Christ, you will never violate the commands of Christ. When you remain in Christ, you will hold so firmly to him that the alternative is exactly what it is, a cheap knockoff imitation. And church, I would dare not settle for the temporary pleasures of this world rather than having the eternal goodness and love of our God. I may fail every day, but I'm going to get up and re reacquaint myself with God and reestablish my identity and being in him 
When it comes to my life, I may fail a thousand times. I probably have already a thousand times. And I'm going to keep going because I would dare not leave a God who loves me so much that he would say, I want you to be with me 24-7. And who has invited me, sinful Tim Jang, to embrace and own the mission of God. To remain in him to own his commands, to take them on. I get to take on the family business. I'm still playing games 24 hours a day. I can't get out of bed because I'm playing too many games. But he's given me the family business. And he's given me the opportunity to own that which he's doing in the world. And what a beautiful invitation it is. And Christian, don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for a cheap imitation. Don't settle for a a cheap sense of righteousness because you followed the Ten Commandments for the last five minutes. Don't settle for anything less than God himself and your time with him. You see, the command of Christ isn't so much about what you do, but it's about where you live and where you reside. You're here physically this morning, but where's your spirit? Where is your heart? You may be at home, keeping us safe from COVID. But where is your heart? And where is your spirit? Are you remaining in Christ? When I think about love and obedience, it makes sense that those two would go together. Because I want to remain in God. And any call that's less than that would be unloving if God loves us more than anything else in this world. If God alone can raise us from the dead, give us peace and make brokenness whole, then for him to say, go ahead and be anywhere else would be entirely unloving. But his call to say, hey, I want to be with you and I want you to be with me 100% of the time would be the most loving call. And so I understand that call of obedience to remain, to guard, to preserve. But point number two, in case you thought I already passed it, is God doesn't expect us to do it alone. You'll notice he says he gives us the Holy Spirit. And most of you have heard us talk about the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk about it more because it keeps coming up in the next few chapters. But what I want to point out today so I don't steal any thunder from Trevor is this. We often think about the Holy Spirit as part of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit out there. God is over there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And most of us think that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and then, and then kind of comes and goes. And he's here and then he's not here. And a lot of us think of that, that image of the, like, uh, the angel on one, on one shoulder and like the demon on the other. And we think that the Holy Spirit is like a coach trying to tell you what to do, or that athletic trainer is yelling at you to do the stretches and do the pull-ups and then do the sit-ups and then do the push-ups. And we think that the Holy Spirit's there to kind of guide us, but otherwise it's standing away from us. Okay, you got to do it. And yet, when we read John 14, there's somehow this intimacy that's portrayed, but it's not just of the Holy Spirit. It's not that God's out there. What does he say? The Holy Spirit's going to be in you, and then he says, the Father and I will make our home with you. You get this sense that as Jesus talks about the present work of the Holy Spirit, you are in an interplay, intimately involved with the Holy Spirit. There's an interplay where God in his fullness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are with you. They reside with you. They make their home with you. There's this interplay of you with the Holy Spirit. You're invited into the dance of the three, 
the Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Christians, this is a big thing for them. God's not separate from us, but we're invited into the dance of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit make their home with us. We live together in partnership and in wholeness. And it's this beautiful relationship that interplays as we interact together. The Holy Spirit pulls us into the Godhead and allows us to be in relationship with the fullness of God. So if you have a hard time turning your affections to Jesus, if your eyes have been clouded by the temporary pleasures of this world, if you have been so bogged down by your own sinfulness you cannot see the overwhelming grace of God, ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Enter into a dance with God in all of his fullness. Enter into the relationship with God in all of creation. If you feel like you can't live and cannot remain in God because maybe like me you're fidgety and can't sit still ever, ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you with the measure of God's patience and peace. Ask him to help you remain still and to take ownership of the commands of God in your life. You might be saying, I can't do it by myself. Praise God, you've just made the first step of coming to Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you've not given your life to Jesus because you're like, I, can't, I don't understand what these people are talking about. Today can be the day you come to Christ, believe in him, receive him. You can bury your life with him in baptism and rise to newness of life. You can receive the new birth and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have forgotten what it means to dance with God. And maybe this morning will be the dime that you remember what it means to enter into the dance with God and the Holy Spirit. So church, may we embrace the love and obedience of God to own his commands and with the help of the Holy Spirit be those who most faithfully represent him in the world. Let's pray. Father, we are unworthy of the call, but we're overwhelmed by the goodness of a God who would long to be with us 24-7, 100% of the time, who's called us, called us to be rooted and to take ownership of all that is yours. And so this morning, Father, as we step into that promise, we do so with fear and uncertainty. But thankfully, we have the gift of your Holy Spirit. And so this morning, Father, awaken in us anew the desire to love and obey you, that we might live into the fullness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through whom we pray. Amen.